Well, hey, good morning and welcome to Christ Church. It is so good to be with you, whether you're here in the West Auditorium, you're joining us in the East Auditorium, or you're joining us online. It's just good for us to be in worship together. My name is Pastor Mike. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Christ Church, and we are in our second week of our Let Us series in which we take a look at three verses from Hebrews chapter 4 that have these powerful statements that follow, let us. That these are communal things that we get to do together, and it's not an added checklist of things that we have to accomplish, but things that we are to know and to hold dear. So last week we talked about, let us enter God's rest. And so if you missed last week, and you are feeling, you know, harried and feeling like you're burned out and running at 100 miles an hour all the time, I encourage you to go to Christchurch Mequon YouTube page and to take a look at that. But for this week, we are talking about this verse, let us hold firmly to what we believe. And it comes from Hebrews 4, 14, which says, so then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. Now, I think that's a beautiful statement, and I love it so much. Let us hold firmly to what we believe. But I wonder, do we know what we believe? I mean, I think we know what we believe, right? When's the last time anybody has asked you to state with any sort of clarity, to articulate what it is that you believe at your innermost being? When's the last time that somebody has asked you, what is it that you truly believe? Because I think that if somebody were to ask most of us, I think that we might find ourselves stumbling a little bit more than we would initially think. That I'm not sure that all of us do know what we hold firm in our belief system. Now I think that there was this really interesting study done in which somebody did take it upon themselves to ask people what they believe. And there was this massive study from the National Institute on Youth and Religion and they interviewed 3,000 teenagers. And when I say interview, I mean they did a qualitative study in which they asked them open-ended questions for them to respond to rather than just multiple choice, do you believe A, B, or C? And the answers that they got in this study were really fascinating and a little bit concerning to those who were doing the research. Because what they found was that so many of these teenagers either were unable to articulate what it is that they believed as Christians, and even more concerning, many of them did know what they believe, but their beliefs could be described only as almost Christian. And so in 2010, a woman by the name of Kenda Creasy Dean wrote this book called Almost Christian entitled, What the Faith of Our Teenagers is Telling the American Church. And what they found is that even though what the teenagers were espousing was not necessarily Christian, there was some convergence around these ideas that 
made kind of a counterfeit Christianity. Something that was so very close to being Christian, but was not quite there. And so they termed this counterfeit belief system, this secular religion, moralistic therapeutic deism. And if you're looking at that and you're like, man, that's a mouthful, and I have no idea what any of that means, you're in luck. We'll break it down a little bit. So they called this belief system moralistic therapeutic deism, and the first word is moralistic because there's this belief that God wants us to be good, nice, and fair. That God wants us to refrain from bad behaviors. You can think about this as like the dad from Footloose, the no drinking, no dancing, no listening to rock music, no playing cards, that type of belief system. Moralistic in the fact that good people who do good things go to heaven. So that's moralistic. The reason that they called it therapeutic is because there was a convergence of beliefs that said, well, the goal of life is to be happy. That there is no higher thing than just making myself be happy. And that God comes into play only when I am feeling sad and I want to feel better. The researchers describe this phenomena of conceiving God as almost a divine butler, someone who fetches something for us when we are in a moment of need, or almost like a cosmic therapist, somebody who we get to tell our problems to and then makes us feel better about ourselves at the end of the day. So that's therapeutic. And then the last one is deism, that God created and ordered the world. Pretty good. But that God exists but does not really get involved in our everyday lives. Now, some of you might be like, oh, that's very different from what I believe. And some of you guys might be sitting there uncomfortable being like, oh, what if I believe all of those things? And I'm not here to tell you that um, those beliefs are wrong necessarily. In fact, that's why the term almost Christian is used. Because just like counterfeit money, this religion is meant to look eerily similar to the true thing, but misses out on some of the key important details of our faith that we believe in as Christians. You see, in moralistic therapeutic deism, there is no room for sin and repentance. That the values of love and mercy and justice and forgiveness are swapped out for just a general sense of being nice. And in fact, it's almost most disturbing that the idea of how we get to heaven in some ways directly contradicts what we get from Scripture. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. You see, what we get from Scripture is the opposite, that it's not about being a good person who does good things, but it's believing and trusting in Jesus Christ, and that is a gift. Our salvation is a gift and not a reward for the things that we do. 
And there are so many other things that are problematic with this view of the world, even thinking that God is distant and doesn't really intercede in our everyday lives is so very different from the way that we conceive of the Holy Spirit, which is interceding on our behalf each and every day. Now, I think that there's a temptation. There's a temptation for us to be like, those teenagers, they just are making up stuff in their head and clearly they are not as faithful as the generations previous. And, you know, we have the true faith and we know what we believe and clearly, you know, it's just the young generation that um, really doesn't get it. But I would challenge that notion. I don't know how many of you guys remember this PSA from 1987 in which there's this anti-drug commercial in which a dad finds his son's cache of drugs and he confronts him about it and he says, where did you learn to do this? And the son goes, I learned it from watching you, dad. You see, moralistic therapeutic deism isn't just some wayward thought or belief from young people, but it is in fact what the next generation of people is learning from us as Christians. That the way that we model our faith, that's how those beliefs end up getting enshrined in our young people. You see, Kenda Creasy-Dean, she says this, the problem does not seem to be that churches are teaching young people badly, but that we are doing an exceedingly good job of teaching youth what we really believe. Namely, that Christianity is not a big deal, that God requires very little of us, and the church is a helpful social institution filled with nice people. And so in many ways, this flies in the face of who we are as Christians and what we believe. And so we return to our verse in Hebrews that says, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. You see, I think we can have this reaction where we say, yeah, moralistic therapeutic deism, that's this wishy-washy faith. And for us, us real Christians, we are going to hold firmly to our belief and we are going to really focus on holding everything firmly. And there's really good support for that. In fact, two verses before verse 14, in verse 12, it says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. I love that. The word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword cutting between soul and spirit, between joints and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. There's this idea that the word of God, the testimony that we receive from the scriptures, it cuts through all the junk that we have stored around our hearts and it gets at the heart of what we truly believe and it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. And when we are faced with those innermost desires and we see something that might look a little bit ugly, it's easy for us to say, okay, God, let's cut that out. Let's strike that from the record. 
And once we are confident that we have struck away our own sin, I think sometimes we get problematic that we hold so firmly to our beliefs that then we say, well, this worked for me. I want to apply it to everybody else. And we start going around condemning other people for their beliefs when they don't match up with our beliefs 100%. In fact, there's this beautiful image of the word of God as a sharpest two-edged sword. But this thing that is meant to be a tool of introspection, something that exposes our innermost thoughts and desires, we like to take this sword, this word of truth, and go around and start slashing at other people. And sometimes it gets problematic that when we hold so firmly to our beliefs and we want to evangelize our specific notion of the gospel, sometimes we do our brothers and sisters a disservice. I like to sometimes think of the word of God as a fork, that it is a gift to us meant to help nourish us and feed us. But in our most terrible, awful moments, we take that fork and we turn it around and we start stabbing at people. And we start condemning the rest of the world and we start condemning the people around us. But I would remind you that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I'm going to read that one more time. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And look, what I think it comes down to is if God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn it, I don't think he sent you. That it's not our job to go around condemning the world, but rather to have this sense of introspection in our faith, to let the word of God work on us and help prune away the unhelpful beliefs so that we can keep the things that we are to most firmly believe and hold on to. And so again, we return to our verse, so then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. Now, I don't know about you, but I think most of us at some point in our walk of faith Many of us will encounter a crisis of belief, a moment in which we are asked to question ourselves, what is it that we truly believe most firmly? What do we hold most dear in our lives? And in these moments of crisis, there are two reactions. Either we can run away from our faith or we can hold more firmly onto the things that God would want us to believe. And I experienced a crisis of belief in college, which is not uncommon. It's a very common story for most people, but mine happened to be very different from other people. You see, when I went to college, many people were like, oh, you gotta hold on to your faith and hold it firmly because you know, college, you're going to be surrounded by all sorts of debauchery that's going to distract you from God. That you're going to be exposed to ideas in philosophy class and evolutionary biology classes that go against the biblical witness. Spoiler alert, none of that made me question my faith. 
But you know what did make me have a crisis of belief? It was three young women from Viroqua, Wisconsin. Three young women, Fran, Molly, and Emily, who were raised by hippies and had no discernible Christian faith. I don't even know if they had ever sat through an entire worship service in their life. But the way that these young women lived made me question what I believe and also what it means for us to be followers of Jesus. So to give you an image of what these three girls were like, um, they mostly had long hair and they had lots of piercings that were filled with handcrafted jewelry. They loved wearing really chunky scarves and in their free time, they loved to play cards. They loved stilting. So if you imagine like carnival, like circus actors, on nice warm days on the quad, they would take their stilts out and walk around on campus being elevated above everybody else. And they loved the environment so much that they loved ecology, um, and they were super cool. Now, I got to start knowing them my freshman year towards the end of the year. And um, in the springtime, um, I had met Fran, and we had bonded over being able to play cribbage together, which was um, super fun. But then um, we all went to spring break, and um, Emily, who was super awesome, spent her uh, spring break doing Habitat for Humanity um, while I uh, was in Hawaii with my family. But when I came back, um, the weather was so nice and the three of us ate lunch together in our cafeteria and it was such a nice day that everybody on campus was wearing shorts except for Fran and Emily and Molly. They had their big winter coats on and I was very confused, and they had not only their meal, but they had a, each of them had a bowl of soup with them. And throughout the meal, I was asking Emily how her habitat experience was, because I thought it was so cool. But I noticed that none of the three of them were touching their soup. And I was like, that's kind of weird. But then when we had finished getting done with our meal, they kind of looked furtively around to see if anybody was watching and they pulled thermoses from their coat and they dumped their uneaten soup into their thermoses and tucked them back into their coats. And I was like, guys, what are you doing? You know that food service has been cracking down on people taking food out of the cafeteria. And they looked at me and they said, our friend Ina is sick and can't get to the cafeteria. So we're bringing her soup. And I thought that that was so cool because for me, when I had gotten sick earlier in the year, you know, I had some wonderful Christian friends, but their reaction to me getting sick was, Mike, we'll, we'll pray for you, but we really don't want you to get us sick. So uh, yeah, we don't want to see you until you're all better. And here, Fran and Emily and Molly were going right up to their sick friends and providing for her. And that was like one of the first moments that I was like, man, that's a really different way than my Christian friends reacted from these people who are not Christian. And furthermore, we had these wonderful meals that our sophomore year, um, when some of us moved off campus, 
we would have these wonderful dinners over at Emily and Molly's house, and they would have these foods that maybe they're not weird to you, but they were weird to me. At the time, I had never heard of quinoa, and I had never had roasted eggplant for dinner. Um, but we'd have these meals, and we would have the most eclectic group of people sitting around the dinner table. That we would have athletes from the track team sitting right next to the guys who headed up the LARPing club which was guys who would make medieval weaponry out of foam and then whack each other with it. And those guys were sitting right next to girls who really loved horses and spent all of their time in the stables on campus. And they were sitting right next to dancers and musicians and poets who were sitting right next to people who were environmentalists and walked around barefoot everywhere. And there was this beautiful moment of realization of like, man, this feels like the kingdom of God in its full diversity. That when scripture talks about Jesus eating with Pharisees and sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, this feels like eating dinner with Jesus. Which in stark contrast to my Christian friends, again, they were wonderful, but our dinners were primarily just the people that we did Bible study with. And there wasn't a lot of space for inviting people outside of our inner circle into our groups. And it made me start to question, what is it about these three women who don't know Jesus at all, but reflect Jesus in a way that maybe me and my Christian friends don't? And the real crisis came in the middle of our sophomore year, in the middle of winter, when one of our mutual friends, David, ended up taking his own life. And Emily and Molly's house, it became ground zero for our morning, that this was the place that we would gather in their living room on mismatched furniture and on beanbag chairs, that we could weep and mourn and just be in each other's presence and they opened their home to us for days that we just got to come and gather and be together. And so when we finally had David's memorial service, because David and I, one of the things that we'd shared in common was a love of music, I wrote a song for his memorial service and I remember as I was playing this song in front of the memorial, right in the first two rows, was Emily and Molly and Fran. But conspicuously absent were some of my closest Christian friends. And I remember that after this, I ended up going to the library and walking through the library and I saw one of my friends who hadn't made it to the service and I confronted him and I just said, where were you, man? Why weren't you at the memorial? And he looked at me and he said, Mike, you know that suicide is a mortal sin. I don't think that Jesus would want me supporting that. And I remember in that moment thinking, I don't think that we believe in the same Jesus. That whatever Jesus you believe in, I'm not sure that that's the one that I believe in. 
Because the Jesus that I believe in is the one that wept when his friend died and spent time with his two sisters. The Jesus that I believe in had dinner with sinners and tax collectors and fishermen and not just other religious people. The Jesus that I believe in runs toward the poor and the sick and not away from them. And it made me question to say, what is it about our Christian faith, what we believe most firmly, that we as Christians could look so unlike Jesus? And Emily and Molly and Fran, three hippies from Viroqua, Wisconsin, could look exactly like who I imagined Jesus to be. Now, obviously, because I'm standing here in this moment is a testament that in that moment of crisis, I didn't run away from my faith. I didn't say, look, the Christian community is full of hypocrites and I want nothing to do with them. No, in fact, what that moment affirmed in me is that it solidified who I believed Jesus to be. And it reminded me that our Christian faith is not about a set of doctrines or beliefs. It is about a person. That our firm belief is in the persons of Jesus Christ. That what we believe in and what we hold firmly to is this man who is the Son of God. And that in his life, death, and resurrection, we are promised new life. And it made me solidify my beliefs that Jesus died for me, that Jesus died for David, and Jesus died for you. And so what we hold firmly to in our belief is this, Jesus, the Son of God, that we hold firmly to who he is, and when we know who Jesus is and we hold on to him, that is what we can rest our hats on. That's what we can hold firm to in our beliefs. And it's what we can carry with us each and every day. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious God, we ask that you come to us and help us to believe in your son Jesus that we might know who he is and might know his character. That as we live our lives as Christians, people might see your goodness through us. Help us to sort through all the things that we could believe in, but don't actually reflect the testimony of who you are. We ask that you walk with us, that you are not a distant God, but that you come into our everyday situations and that you help Push us, push us towards loving on our neighbors as Jesus set an example for. And so for these values of mercy and forgiveness and repentance, may you make those real inside of us that we might know you 
and we might hold fast to Jesus in our each and everyday lives. So God, walk with us, be with us, and help us know what it is we firmly believe so that we can walk in faith with you and reflect your goodness in all we do. We love you so much, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.